Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Francesca Saunders is a wildlife artist, a geographer by profession and is an advocate for the Alliance of Art and Wildlife Conservation. After studying history at Edinburgh University, she decided to pursue a career as an artist, painting in Florence for two years after her degree. Francesca has had her work constantly recognised by being a 2013 BBC Wildlife Artist of the Year finalist, with commendation, and with two paintings shortlisted for the finals of the David Shepherd Wildlife Artist of the Year Award. Following these accolades, Francesca became a commissioned war artist in Afghanistan, creating a series of paintings in Sangin, Hellmound. In 2015, she was chosen as one of the Sky Arts Landscape Artists of the Year, and she now splits her time between painting in the African bush or in Scotland. So we're really lucky to have her here today in the society in the Ondachi Theatre. Francesca, welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Can we start by asking you, how did your journey to becoming an award-winning wildlife and landscape artist begin? I think it might have started in the pub, like many good adventures. After I finished my university degree, I spent four or five years working in advertising. And I was just getting itchy feet. And a friend said to me, you know, if you study your art, which I'd always sort of kept on the side... Uh, you could go anywhere. And I thought, that's true. And I think um, I decided I'd go out to East Africa for a year and then get a proper job. And 12 years later, (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) And what projects are you working on at the moment in East Africa or in the UK? Well, at the moment, quite a sort of commercial side of things. um, I've got a trade stand at the Chelsea Flower Show and I'm showing some of my commissioned work and I have some paintings for sale and some of that work will be from the pandemic when I was enjoyably forced like the rest of the world to stay at home and start appreciating the local garden birds and uh, critters rather than swanning off to East Africa Uh, so I'll be showing some paintings from my doorstep which will be great fun. Lovely. And was that a productive couple of years, the the time you spent at home under lockdown? I actually had long COVID, so I achieved very, very little. Um, But once I'd recovered and got back into it, it was so nice not getting stuck in the mud in a vehicle, uh, which I spend a lot of time doing, and just walking out of the back door and (laughs) finding inspiration there. Is there much difference between the artwork that you engage with in East Africa and here in terms of the painting or the medium that you use? No, not really, except that just because traveling around, it's sort of harder to take bigger pieces. One of my sort of favorite methods is using oil on primed paper in East Africa because it's readily portable and it doesn't break so easily as large canvases, which I can, up in Scotland, I can afford to sort of take a big painting and put it in the back of the car and there's less dust and things to get stuck in it. So I use slightly different setups and I tend to take lots of photos, do lots of oil sketches and pencil sketches, and then bring everything back to the studio from East Africa. In the UK, I can sometimes paint an entire piece directly from life. Also, less lions to eat you. 
uh, which <laughs> helps if I got out of the vehicle Less <laughs> danger. to paint a landscape and get quite absorbed. Um, I might forget to look around. So those are the differences. But in terms of what I use to paint, it's pretty much the same stuff. And um, where are we talking about in East Africa specifically? Tanzania, Kenya. I've been to Uganda to study and meet some gorillas, uh, which was amazing. I felt quite undeserving of that trip. Uh, and then I've been off to East Timor to try and paint underwater, which uh, <laughs> surprisingly didn't work very well. Uh, but m- mostly the focus has been in East Africa, sort of in, in those countries. The reason why I asked is that a large part of A-level geography now focuses on the concept of place and its representation. How can art create a sense of place? Such a good question, and maybe this supports my wanderlust, but I think it makes a real difference if you physically visit the place that you're painting and spend as many hours of your life as you possibly can observing the nature within it. Because I think a good painting, not to say that mine necessarily are, but what I try to achieve in mine isn't just a direct representation that you might get from a photograph, but all the senses that are stirred when you're looking at a place so that that painting hopefully represents the entire atmosphere. So not just visually what you're seeing, but the smells and the kind of feeling that you get that when you're there that you can't quite put into words. And I think if you are able to witness that firsthand, you end up with a better piece. I also think you just enjoy your your job and your life more, you get more from it. And I always think when you're observing from nature, you're constantly learning something new, which can be very addictive and very, very useful for art. So, yeah, I think uh, place is key to being an artist. I think then on a secondary level in Kenya, what's been so interesting is meeting the people that can serve and manage the place that you're painting in and understanding that a painting that you're doing of a place is also telling the story of the people that work to protect that space. So you might do a painting of an elephant, but you're also then able at an exhibition to explain to people who are there how that elephant is able to exist in that environment in its modern day and all the challenges that are involved in uh, conserving the space so that that wilderness can exist. And I guess that's something that just happened very naturally with the work that I was doing, you just bump into people when your car breaks down or at lunch and you'll sit next to the world expert on the elephant shrew or the African elephant or the rhino or the tick. That's that's happened. Quite oh, well. disconcerting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, immediately gets you scratching your arms and legs. Um, and so you immediately, the work that you're doing is imbued with all of that backstory. And I think if you can paint and have that story in mind, it has a stronger connection to what you're doing and I suppose to the audience or the people that are buying your work ultimately. I was just thinking, it's funny you mentioned the word story, that it it kind of creates a narrative and conveys a message about conservancy in your your case. Yeah, so actually um, from then doing those paintings, I've found that arranging exhibitions in support of conservation groups can be a very useful soft way of promoting the work that they do. And for example, I've done quite a lot of work with the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy, which is based in Kenya. And what's worked quite well in the past is having an exhibition full of paintings from there. And various people that work at Lewa have been there to talk to clients who might be interested in 
buying the paintings and might have been out to Lewa on safari, but they can also hear the latest work that's been done, for example, on rhino conservation, which is one of the things that they focus on. And then they might perhaps be willing to donate more or learn more about it. So it's it's worked very well in, in, at bringing people in in quite a soft way um, into learning more about conservation programmes in East Africa. And with these conservation programmes and the way that you try and depict the landscape, can I ask, is art always an accurate depiction of place? <laughs> it's an artistic answer, but it depends how you define place. And I guess what we were talking about earlier in terms of place do you want to make it look exactly like it is or do you really want to make it feel like it feels? So when I do a painting, I might maybe make a tree slightly smaller or bigger than it actually is um, or make a, a mountain appear more majestic to try and highlight that sense of what it feels like to be in that place. And so that sort of maybe moves away from it being entirely accurate, but perhaps better reflects how I've, felt that place to be from from me being there and it's always a nice compliment when people say that they that really feels like that place to them you can also use things like there's something called the golden section which actually appears in nature in uh shell shapes and things like that which is sort of like a sweet spot for the eye so if i'm doing a landscape i'll set up a a golden section and there are these certain places within a a canvas that if you put a focal point um it it sort of is very easy on the eye and makes that painting somehow have an extra element of enjoyment it's basically a trick (laughs) so i will (laughs) i'll sometimes use those tricks to help improve the composition of a painting which might mean moving a tree or an elephant um <laughs> from slightly over <laughs> <laughs> that's really fascinating um and why kenya why paint and try and capture the imagery that you find in east africa i suppose what i really enjoy with painting is the ability to learn from people and places and kenya's full of the the landscape's incredible the diversity of wildlife and flora and fauna is is just ridiculous and then there are these amazing people doing pioneering work to live alongside and protect and study all all of those things so it's just uh you you get up every day and you know you're going to learn something new it never gets boring so I suppose I've also done some work in in other places but I've got more and more involved with the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy, and so I, that being based in Kenya, I spent more time there. And I think uh, as a country, there's hopefully a feeling that conservation is being increasingly recognised on a government level. And so some of the projects working uh, on a local level are, are starting to have conversations at a government level, and it's quite reassuring or hope it gives you hope to see change happening in, in that country. It's an exciting exciting place to be and to study. Could you give us some detail about the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy that we've we've mentioned a few times? Yeah, absolutely. So they've come up with this really brilliant concept, which I think if you read in the papers about rhino poaching and elephant poaching, um, it can be very depressing because you're not quite sure what can be done to alleviate that. And actually, the other side of it is that um, there are less lions than there are rhinos. And that's a much harder conversation to have in the press because 
at, at that point, you recognise that the reason there aren't um, as many lions is because there isn't enough space. And then you end up with a competition between humans trying to live in that space and wilderness. And it's very hard to say that one person shouldn't live in the space that they were born in in order to protect an animal and to put more value on an animal's life than on a human's. And what Lewa has done that is so clever is it's created a local community that own and run that land and shown that value can be given into protecting and looking after that land. So it used to be owned by a family, but it's under an easement policy. It's now owned by the Kenyan people and it's run by the local community and they can see the value in and the financial value in wilderness, in the tourism that's attracted to the wilderness, and therefore in maintaining that space. And they've done a wonderful job of creating a local network of schools, surgeries, medical support, water supplies, all that sort of thing. And that example that Lewa started off with has now been expanded under the Northern Rangelands Trust, NRT, by Ian Craig, to take that concept of working with local communities to conserve a wilderness area and find ways of achieving the same ends in several other places bordering Lewa so that there's now an area the size of Switzerland that's protected in that way, which allows for animal, particularly elephant pathways, to be re-established that had, had been lost in the past. For coming up with a model that will last sustainably into the future and can survive you know political problems and droughts and so it's it's wonderful to be um involved in that in a small way and where is this area that we're talking about that lewa manages it's just north of mount kenya in what's called north kenya but is actually just above um the the center and there were a whole load of farms there that white settlers were given in the 1950s and it's now been turned into a place (laughs) uh, where you can visit on safari but you can also see all the wonderful conservation work that's been done there so it's both a tourist a high-end tourist destination but it's also a place to research grevy zebra to protect rhino and to learn how to continually sustain that space for the future and work out how they can help neighbouring communities to do the same thing. So it does a lot of things in one in one place. <laughs> Taking a lot of boxes. Um, have you found art to be an effective vehicle to promote the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy? Yes, I mean, I'm sure if I was a billionaire, I'd have a more direct and more effective approach if I could write a cheque. But uh, it's I, I think it's a nice way through exhibitions and meeting clients to introduce them to Lewa. And a lot of the people that buy my paintings love the outdoors, love maybe going on safari and experiencing wilderness and being able to observe wildlife and, and birds and, and all sorts of things. And so they often have a very natural interest in what's being done to protect that. And so the people that I've met through many walks of life, through the work that I do, I've been able to introduce to Lewa a little bit. And I think a lot of artists have started making, as one of the sort of key parts of the work that they do, talking about the story of where they've done their painting and how that landscape and that wilderness is protected. And I think a lot of people that 
by my art are, are interested in that story. And I suppose people don't just buy, they might buy a painting because they like it, but I think they also buy a sort of, sounds a bit pompous, but a belief system, <laughs> you know, that they're interested in how it's been painted and the conservation story behind it. And normally when I sell my paintings, I give a percentage back to Laywell or whichever conservation group it is. And I think that's something that's increasingly popular or makes sense to the people that are interested in buying my work. So in a very small way, because <laughs> really all these people that I meet, they're going out every day doing the most incredible work. But in a very small way, I think it contributes it's really interesting. We return to that word about story and developing a narrative and conveying a message. Can I ask, talking a lot about Lewa, and we mentioned earlier about you visiting Scotland to do some painting. Mm. Do you have a favourite landscape? Is it the savannas or uh, <laughs> the bush or the Scottish highlands? Unfortunately, I'm a real glutton for punishment. I think my favourite landscapes are the most difficult, challenging ones. I remember doing one in Afghanistan that was a real challenge, both in terms of time. It was to be painted in this rose garden, but in December, so there was one little hardy rose there. But the idea, the commission was to be to have this painting full of roses. So <laughs> there were a lot of challenges, and and the people that I was painting weren't really there, so I <laughs> had to rely on these wall camera um, setups to to get portraits of these people but it was such an exciting challenge I think one of my favorite things is therefore probably anything to do with water it's really hard to get it right and if anyone has tried at any point in their lives to do a portrait they'll probably find the nose one of the hardest things to do and I remember an art teacher years ago saying you have to look at it as if it's not a nose <laughs> um, and then just draw exactly what you see and water is fascinating because it has so many rules that your eye tries to see past and change and actually if you look at it you discover all these different things that happen in water and you have to trust your observation not what you think water should be doing Otherwise, it doesn't look right. So, for example, if you're looking at a river in the shadow, in the foreground, you can't see through the water, but in on the far bank, you can. And the same with light. When it's far away, you can't see through it, but when it's near, you can. And that's very confusing, but it's also incredibly rewarding when you start to discover all these little details of how you know, geography in the world and systems work. And there's nothing more frustrating than water <laughs> <laughs> and its depiction. Because <laughs> it keeps on moving. <laughs> it keeps on moving. <laughs> um, that's a nice segue uh, into my next question. I wondered, for students, could you offer a little advice on creativity? I, I imagine you're very well placed to do so. On creativity? Well... I wouldn't be afraid, even if you think that you're not good at drawing, to sketch something. Because whenever I've sketched something, there's something really nice that happens where it becomes etched in your brain and you remember it. And if I've sketched somewhere, I'll notice on someone's postcard, for example, I'll notice the shape of that mountain range or that log. And even if you haven't sketched it correctly, it'll stay in your mind. And I think that's something that's really quite lovely to have and we're all guilty of spending so much time on our phones these days but as soon as you allow yourself a moment to sketch something 
you immediately start noticing more things that might have passed you by if you'd just taken a photo of it. So I'd really encourage that. I'd also say, I remember having to do a lot of studying at school and university. Creativity is almost um, what you do when you're not thinking about getting a good grade. You're just genuinely interested in what you're looking at or you're studying. Um, uh, But I'd really encourage people to allow a bit of space for just following their passions, because if you really enjoy what you're studying, you often end up getting a better mark and enjoying the work that you do. So if you can allow a little bit of space for that, I think it can be incredibly rewarding and I'd encourage people to pick up their pencils. (laughs) Well, that has real application for the classic geography field work when Mm. students are asked to create field sketches Mm. uh, or mood boards or soundscapes. And often geography teachers have to persevere with encouraging their students into doing it. Do you have any musings following on from that on mindfulness or the importance of geography students or students in general working quietly? I find it very helpful to get in the zone and work quietly. And I remember this uh, teacher in Florence, his line was silence and slow time. And I sometimes have that in my head when I paint because I don't know whether this sort of resonates with the study of geography, but when you're painting, there's a system that you're working on and you sort of get several layers into your brain about what you're trying to achieve. And if you can turn off the sort of admin alarm that keeps reminding you of all these things you've got to do and pay your gas bill and all that kind of thing, then I think you end up with better work and you find connections in there. So, for example, I now banish myself from looking at my phone and I have a Fitbit so that I can just, well, work out how lazy I am on a day-to-day basis, but also I can check the time without looking at my phone because then it's a rabbit hole. You see a message and before you know it, you've stopped painting. So I have to really uh, enforce (laughs) sort of a meditative approach to my work, but I find it's really, really useful to creating better work And I also try to section off parts of the day where I sort of go through my emails and my correspondence in a batch and then try and leave that to the side. And it's it's difficult to do, but I think um, actually for anyone studying anything, if, if you're able to sort of be aware of your work and aware that you're not checking your phone and sort of setting a bit of a discipline, it can, it can really help. That's kind of what I was getting at for A-level geographers, maybe embarking on coursework or uh, an extended project, is that it could help them if they have that focused time away from their technology. Yes, and also, I really think a lot of people on WhatsApp, their sort of signature is, I'm busy. And I think a lot of people feel that they have to be busy, but some of the most successful CEOs are people that make sure that they have time in their diary where there's nothing in it and they can go for a walk and just think over something that they might be doing. And I think, you know, if, for example, you're doing an essay or often if I'm doing a painting, I will turn it to face the wall and refuse to look at it for a couple of weeks. Or if I'm trying to work out something that I'm writing going for a walk and actually just giving myself time to mull it over can end up saving a huge amount of time and you end up coming up with a better result. So I'd really encourage the idea of just allowing a bit of space in your life and your timetable so that your brain can come up with better ideas. 
finally, returning to Kenya and your work with Lewa, what needs to happen in the 21st century for Kenyan conservation to be successful, in your opinion? I think it's a really good, difficult question, and there are better people than me to answer it. I think if a government can recognise the financial value of wilderness and wildlife and its conservation and have a plan to protect it, then that makes a huge difference. If that government is then able to allow local areas to have the ability to carry that work out and to make decisions locally, because they're often the best people that know what's going on locally, then I think that's a very powerful way of achieving successful conservation aims. I think it's also just down to all these amazing people that you meet that get up every day and pursue the research project that they're doing or the conservation project that they're doing and just keep going and don't give up. (laughs) Do different Kenyan stakeholders have different criteria for successful management? Absolutely. And even two people that agree on the same thing are probably going to agree in their minds in a slightly different way. And when you imagine the different priorities that different stakeholders have, it's very difficult to get consensus. I think one of the most important things for conservation to succeed is to try and get people communicating and collaborating and being as much as they can on the same page and agreeing to achieve the same goals. I think actually a lot of conservation and charity groups fail in that they often go down silos and don't work enough with each other. And that can often happen when people are very passionate about what they're working on, that they almost become competitive with their natural allies. And there's been a bit of a change, I think, which is really good to see where there's more collaboration happening, people sharing more ideas and helping to work together to achieve those aims, which sounds very Disney, doesn't it? But I think that's one of the the best things you can do in order to get stakeholders with different aims to be able to come together and and achieve success. It's an endlessly difficult task for stakeholders to be able to come together and and achieve, but one worth pursuing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Francesca, and for coming in to talk to us about the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.